Hey, welcome to another Gospel Rant. This is Gospel Rant number 115. Uh, we're going to be talking about shame and evangelism. What difference do all these podcasts on shame help us with reaching the world for Christ? I mean, I mean, all of this talk on shame, who wants to talk about it? It doesn't seem to lead to arguments or discussions or dialogues. It just makes people sad, right? Hey, I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. I had a friend who was a missionary to the Palestinians for years, and he learned that the best way to get a dialogue going that didn't offend or cause the person to click their tongue and walk away was to start with this sentence when asked if he was a Christian. He said, the faith of my fathers is Christianity. Yeah, that struck me. It was so simple. It wasn't judging or aggressive. It wasn't an in-your-face thing. It was just a statement of fact. And then the person could then respond, the faith of my fathers is Islam. And then the dialogue would begin. He had great success with that. Indirectly, it's an acknowledgement that our faith narrative didn't begin when we became convinced that Jesus made rational sense to us. My testimony began much earlier. Matter of fact, It began before I was born. People were talking about me, particularly my parents, considering what they were going to call me, uh, what neighborhood we would live in, families that we would hang out with. Even before I could speak, I was being shaped by subtle clues around the world that I was born into. My story began with someone else. Kurt Thompson writes, quote, Others' contribution to your narrative never stops, for even as we acquire language and mobility, growing in our independence and agency, with the dawning awareness of our capacity to direct our own thoughts and respond to our own feelings, we are always interacting with other people. And their versions of the world, our world in particular, continues to shape and influence the way we understand and tell our unfolding narrative. First our parents, then teachers, friends, coaches, spouses, children, employers, and even panhandlers on the street are writing in the margins of our autobiographies. We're tempted to believe we're solo artists, but we are more like featured soloists in a symphony. The question, of course, is what kind of music will we play together? Close quote. Do you see what he's saying? Our worldview in the West has been so defined by the Enlightenment. You know, I think, therefore I am. And without getting lost in the philosophical weeds, we inherently believe that we are singular independent agents with total control over our life, our existence, what we believe, how we see the world, our brain, our emotions, right? If we so choose, we can change our appearance, our sex, our context, our friends. We can choose happiness in a heartbeat. We can choose to forgive, choose to believe, choose to let go of deep betrayals and wounds, right? Sound familiar? And look, there's some validity to free agency, particularly I can make choices and I am accountable for my choices, those two things. But beyond that, I'm really not as free as I want to imagine. Nowhere near. I don't have that power to choose as much as I think I do. I'm a complex gumbo, thick gumbo of the many affects in my life to date. Some have more consequences than others. I'm not a independent agent, at least not that I would like to be or think that I am. For instance, I cannot just choose happiness. I can't. Try it. I don't have that muscle group. Faith in my fathers, right? Let me give you an example. Thompson tells the story of Robert, 
whose paternal grandfather had been a successful businessman who lost it all after being betrayed by someone he trusted. So Robert's father picked up those not-so-subtle signals from his dad that trust is not as permanent as you would like it to be, you can't really be safe, you can't really just trust people. And he worried about being able to provide for his family, but instead of getting angry or worried or paranoid, he dealt with it by working harder, working more hours, uh, gathering more money and savings, uh, spending less, budgeting. All good things, right? Because you never know what might happen, who might betray you. It's all flimsy, and so you just got to keep keep on that treadmill. Faith of the fathers, right? Robert, third generation, picked it up as well. He struggles with workaholism, anxiety, and depression. He's never at peace, never able to rest. So what's the faith of the fathers in Robert's case? Well, one faith of the fathers creedal statement is this. In the end, we will not be okay. In the end, we will not be okay. See, nobody says it aloud. Nobody puts it on the family crest or sews it on pillows. But it's always there in that household. And it'll be passed on to Robert's children. How can they ever really trust in God's goodness and provision, right? Now, they may adhere to creedal statements. But if you looked at their lives and if you listened to their prayers, their faith statements, they're on their own. Their safety, their security at the end of the day, they functionally believe is dependent upon their own wiles, their own efforts, their own success, on luck and chance. And when Robert prays, it's going to be something like this. God, help me be successful at work today. God, help me land the Smith account. Um, God, help the stock market grow today. Those kind of things, right? Not bad prayers, but you get the emphasis. Faith of our fathers. Well, what about the peace of God that surpasses understanding? I'm sure Robert believes in that, but it's a distant functioning philosophy. You know, what's what's driving him? It's inherent fear of failing, inherent fear of falling short in the end, of running out of money before you die. That's what reigns in his brain. Again, subconsciously. Well, how about if we sent Robert to a class on the peace of God? Will that help? Now, back to the Enlightenment. Faith of our fathers is so powerful, and it's largely subconscious. It's largely irrational. It's uh, very emotive. And it thrives in the midbrain, uh, you know, not the frontal cortices where rational cognitive things happen, but it thrives in the midbrain, empowered and surrounded by chemicals such as dopamine and cortisol. Robert needs, frankly, to access a miraculous power from God through his spirit and his inner being, to even begin to really, 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 really grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus for him right now, as he is. And this would include the stunning good news that Jesus has promised so much for Robert, as he is. He loves him equally, whether he's successful, whatever that means to Robert or not. He is so proud of him right now, as he is, all because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on Robert's behalf. See, that's the present gospel to the Christian Robert. And that's the mysterious, miraculous love that can begin to cast out fear now and that can actually change Robert. So what difference does this make to evangelism, to, you know, to non-Christians, to seekers? Well, I think it should be clear, but here we go. Two things. First, one size does not fit all. Is your simple gospel all about just one aspect of the good news? If you walked out today, got hit by a truck, 
I mean, do you know where you will go, heaven or hell? I mean, that's the old evangelism explosion question we were all raised in, if you're a boomer. And those aren't bad questions. It's just that the gospel is not one size fits all. It never has been. It's my observation that most folk in the United States today could care less about heaven or hell. And their brains just shut down if you mention it. They stop listening. Dialogue over. And that's not good. So first, one size does not fit all. Second, the power of the gospel is not limited to our frontal cortices. <laughs> you probably never heard that in a single sentence. Uh, look, for decades, evangelism and apologetics have been very cognitive, very rational, uh, looks more like a PowerPoint than a dialogue. Well, let me convince you of the existence of God. Let me convince you of heaven and Jesus and sin and consequences and hell and the cross. And so I believe that once you, a rational, independent agent, unaffected by all this other stuff, once you see uh, the complete picture, you will naturally be convinced and you'll choose to jump in. It just makes sense, right? And again, that's not bad. We need to keep doing those things. But truth told, we're far more complicated people with deeper, effective, sometimes blinding issues of shame and guilt and fear, relational attachment wounds, uh, addictions, unforgivenesses that can be blinding. We can't be cognitive. So, for instance, if I'm afraid of trusting human beings, let's say I'm, I'm Robert's grandfather, or let's say I'm a, a person who's been abused or bullied or raped or, or betrayed, why would I ever want to trust a deity? Right? It's midbrain stuff. It's fear, cortisol, fight, flight, freeze. It's not rational, but it's very real, very powerful. And that has chemicals behind it that my frontal cortices doesn't have. It, it affects my decisions. So look, we need to do a deep dive into that power of the gospel. It has great things to say about power over fear, First John 4. It is the key to accessing real amazing love and honor uh, for me as I am, not as I should be, Ephesians three fourteen to 21. It is the power that can begin to unravel my addictions and compulsive shame cycles. You know, real life stuff. When we speak with people... It helps to recognize that they are not purely rational, independent agents just waiting to be convinced of some higher truth, which then they can unhindered, full-heartedly jump into if we only convince them, right? Frontal cortices stuff. You know what? They are a complex entity made up of everything that has happened to them in their lives. And, and matter of fact, even before that, they are made up of the faith of their fathers, a narrative that began before they were even born. The Take Heart and Gospel App discipleship programs were created with, with all of this in mind. Does your gospel right now have something to say to that person whose subconscious life mantra is, in the end, we will not be okay? Yeah, it could. Check it out. Take heart, child of God. Hey there, it's Nicole Eunice from the How to Study the Bible podcast, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we weekly discover a passage of God's Word together. From beginning to end, from principles to practicals, we are here to make sure that God's Word is powerful and relevant to your life. If that sounds like something you're looking for, I would love to invite you to subscribe. You can go to lifeaudio.com and search How to Study the Bible, and we'll see you there.